All right. We're going to move the questions now to the people who are present here with who have questions. And I'd like to start with Tim Martins. He has a question on video lag. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, hear you well. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, I had an interview about your My Big Toe books, and the guy doing the interview saw the video where, where you talked about it. Uh, you know, with the pictures people see, and they react to it before even the computer has chosen the picture. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And um, he wanted me to explain it a bit more, but I couldn't explain it on a more detailed level because I don't really understand it myself. Um, when the human body evolved in this reality, why isn't it the way that the body reacts to things in the normal time information needs to travel through the body until it comes to a reaction? Um, it is not really clear to me why the information system would do this would do it this way and cover it up because when everybody and everything would react in the same uh, normal slower time, there would be no problem with uh, video lag. Maybe you can relate to it. Okay. Well, you're right. If if we if we were just very slow, then things would happen here slowly. But there would be some limitations to that. If things here were happen slowly. Um, to the point that our that our uh, rule set and our biology could could deal with them, then there would be things that would be very difficult for us to do, um, like um, well, like uh, you know, flying a jet airplane or driving a car or doing things that require very fast reaction times. If you physically, if you just had to have your physical body. Uh, react to something, then the reaction would probably be too slow. We'd have to drive cars that only went 30 mile an hour or so, otherwise we'd always be running into things because we wouldn't have a fast reaction time. The only reason that we can have a fast reaction time is that our body, our electromechanical body, actually starts to go into action before the before we're even aware of the problem, of the event. So our our mind works to make us move in a not in a choppy way. You can imagine this the slowness of reaction time. Look at a um, you know, look at a video that was done fifty years ago, animation, you know, when the early the early video games. I'm not sure you're old enough to know early video games, but the video games that were going on uh, back when you were, a, you know, a young a young guy, you notice how choppy they were. All the motion was jerky. Um, you know, the the pictures of the people weren't smooth. Everything had zaggy, you know, zigzaggy lines on it, and all the motion was in kind of jerks. Well, there's only so much that that. Now think that you're a character. If you were a character in that simulation. Where you could only move and, you know, jerks it, you know, you know, you moved, I can't see it on the thing, you know, you moved like this, where you just kind of jerked around, you couldn't have any fine motor coordination where you could do things smoothly, then life would be limited to just people doing very jerky, short motions, and there wouldn't be any, there wouldn't be any uh, ability to manipulate or to do things or to construct things or to build or do anything that required smooth 
you know, high level of uh, motor coordination. And so they just live that way. Well, we would have to live in a way that uh, it took us, instead of, you know, what, uh, a hundredth of a second or a tenth of a second to hit the brake, say a tenth of a second to hit the brake when something comes out in front of us, we'd have to live in a world where it took a second to hit the brake. And that would just limit the things that we could do. So the reason that we can we can build the machines we can build, that we can uh, interact smoothly in the way we do, is because we don't have to wait for this electromechanical physical body of ours to do it all. We have consciousness that helps us move and react more quickly to things. And it's a like like an example, you know, uh, raise your hand, you know, and one of the one of the experiments that was done early on with this is that uh, they would find that if if you have a group of people and you wire them up so that you can see the tiniest little beginnings of electrical motion to start the muscles going. Okay, you look at these little minute potentials, and we only knew this about in the 1960s because that's when we had equipment sensitive enough to measure these tiny little voltages down in muscle tissue that let us know that a muscle was getting ready to do something. And so you have people in a room, and they're wired up to, to these little tiny electropotentials, and somebody says that, you know, when the bell rings, raise your hand. Well, if we didn't have, and what they found out was that just before the bell rang, little potentials in the muscles would start to fire, would start to go. The muscle was starting to prepare to raise a hand before the bell rang. And they used that to come to the conclusion that there was no free will. That the body moved all by itself, had nothing to do with consciousness, because they didn't understand consciousness. They were only thinking of consciousness as a local awareness in a mind, not as a bigger system thing. So what happens is that if we didn't have consciousness starting our muscles moving before the bell rang, what you would see is a, is a people sitting in a room waiting for a bell to ring, a bell would ring, and then... A little while later, hands would go up, but they wouldn't go up right away. The bell would ring, and we'd hear it because maybe that's a, a faster circuit. But to get the muscles moving and to get the blood pumping and to get the, the, uh, the uh, signals that go from, you know, from brain into the blood, the blood circulates into muscle, muscle starts action. For all that, you'd hear a ring, and everybody would sit there like, um, you know, like they were deaf. And then eventually hands would start to go up. Well, that doesn't, that's like little, little stick people of the, of the uh, simulations of 50 years ago. We'd have to live in a place where reaction times were very, very slow, which limits what we can do with our technology. And, and uh, this makes it a, a, not a very smooth virtual reality, not a good virtual reality. So that's the problem. The rule set didn't produce fast mechanisms with the biology. Our mechanisms are slow. The brain hears something. The ears hear something. That goes to the brain. The brain needs to get a signal down a nerve. It also needs to change 
chemicals in the blood supply. Those chemicals need to get into the tissue and cause certain things to happen. And you've got this whole series of things, and it doesn't happen in microseconds. It happens maybe at best in, you know, in, in uh, large fractions of seconds. So we have consciousness that helps us get over this video lag, which is why we're able to sense things. We become aware of things before they happen. And we do this emotionally as well as physically. We get things in consciousness. Consciousness is very fast. You see, our consciousness is a very, very fast computer. Billions and billions of cycles in consciousness for every one cycle we have in this physical reality. So as far as the computation cycles go. So when somebody that you're close to um, is going to have a horrible experience, you may get a sensation of that before the experience ever happens. You'll start to feel it. And that's because a feeling in you is slow. It requires things to be secreted in your bloodstream and the blood to move it from where it started to someplace else for it to have an interaction. Those feelings of fear or feelings of upset are not instantaneous. They're biochemical, mechanical things. But uh, you, will, you will feel it. You will begin that process before the thing actually happens. It's a, a device to a limit video lag. Video lag would limit what we could do as a people. We could still pull loads in ox carts even if we couldn't move fast. But we probably couldn't drive cars or fly airplanes or do or play the video games, the, you know, the Twitch games that we play um, if we had to think about it. So that's my best answer to that. I don't know if it helps you explain it or helps him understand it, other than, yeah, we could get by, but not to the level of, expertise that we have developed because that requires a very fine coordination and uh, it would be a choppier world if we didn't have that wouldn't be a smooth world okay yeah thank you I hope it, uh, it's good enough for the guy and uh, if not uh, he wants to make an interview with you for his podcast in next year so he will ask <laughs> okay. it again. And uh, one, okay. one, one more thing, Tom. Um, this is the German book, and it's out now on Amazon. So. Oh, yeah. great! Great, we have book number one. Okay, available for sale on Amazon in German. Yes. Super. And and how long will it be before book number two arrives? Yeah, that's not in my hands, but. Uh, like I said, uh, book book two and book three, we will in a certain way put online that uh, people who want it can can read it online and uh, until it's done and buy a book. Okay, yeah. book two and book three are in progress and they will be put up online for those people that don't want to wait to get to them. You know, it's like one of these things you read a series of books and you have to wait three years before the next book comes out. You know, that's always frustrating. So uh, they'll be up online, but they'll be online as a, you know, kind of a as is. You know, it's just the state it's in now, and it won't necessarily be current because they're not, every time they, they make a change in their manuscript, they're not going to go change 
the thing that's online. That'll just stay there for a while. It'd be too much trouble to continually change it. So it'll be however it is, however it was at that time, and it'll stay that way for a fairly long time until there's, I guess, maybe a big major update, and then they might update it. So German speakers, you've now got MBT in your language, one finished and the other two online. Not or now, well be online. But in a few weeks, they will. Yeah, well be online. Okay. Yeah. All right. Ask us, Agnet. <laughs> um, the next question uh, we'll have from, let's go to Bodan, if you would like to ask your question. Hello. Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I do hear you. I would like to ask you uh, about your experience, how to make meditation more effective in terms of out-of-body experience, and uh, also what will be, what is the difference between TMI uh, binaural bits or focuses or and your binaural bits? Thank you. Okay. Um... Meditation is always the first step in actually getting anywhere, I guess, pretty much as far as, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting around in the larger consciousness system, which might be called uh, um, out of body. It might be called um, lucid dreaming. Uh, those are two ways to get around. Or it may just be called, you know, relaxing and getting information. You can get a, you can you can get information out of the larger conscious system without without doing anything other than relaxing your mind. There's a few basic things you have to learn how to do, and meditation just helps you learn these. But it isn't the only way to learn them. One is you have to learn to let your intellect go, get out of your intellect, stop assessing, stop judging, stop analyzing, just experience, just be. Without this constant, well, am I being right? Oh, what sort of experience was that? Was that was that the right thing, or did I make that up? You see, we constantly tend to be judging and analyzing. So one thing you have to do is get rid of that. Just be able to experience without judgment, experience without analysis. Just be an experience. Do your judging and analysis later after you've had your experience, but your judging will stop the experience when you are experiencing outside of this physical reality. So number one, tell your intellect to sit down and be quiet until after you're done. Okay. The second thing you need to do is to lower the noise. And this is related in that the noise in your mind is where your mind doesn't stay focused on just in the moment what it's doing, you know, what it's working on. All kinds of extraneous thoughts come in. You know, just day-to-day -day stuff. You know, what am I going to do next? Uh, you know, what's for dinner? Uh, you know, so-and-so going to do this at work? Oh, I better, I have some things that are on my plate I need to get done before tomorrow morning. And just all the thoughts that intrude. People generally have, I don't know, uh, you know, 10, 15 thoughts every second or so. They're just thoughts bombarding people. All their daily stuff. Uh, all the stuff that stresses you, all of that stuff is constantly in your mind, even if you're not 
processing it intellectually. So you have to turn all that off. So you have to get your intellect gone. And when you get your intellect gone, most of that chatter will go with it. But there's still other stuff, some some stuff that's still at your being level, mostly the stress and the things that you feel committed to do and you're concerned about or worried about or or want to make sure you don't mess up. And all that stuff is also noise to your mind. You need to let all of that go, all the worries, all the concerns, all the stresses. So that's the second thing. Get rid of the intellect first. Get rid of all the noise that's in your consciousness is the second thing. Okay, then if you can do that, the next thing you do is just let go of the physical world. Let go of your sense data. Stop working on, stop processing what you feel. Stop processing what you hear. Stop processing um, you know, the things you see. Well, you can help stop processing the things that you see by closing your eyes. Now, you don't see much, so you don't have that processing going on. Well, it's harder to close your ears, but you can stop processing sounds. That doesn't mean that you won't hear them. If you're sitting in your room trying to meditate and somebody outside honks a horn, you will hear the horn honk, but you don't have to process it. By processing, I mean you don't have to you don't have to say, "Oh, who's that? I wonder if there's somebody out there honking for my attention. Uh, I wonder if that's my uh, brother who's uh, you know come over and wants to go someplace uh, or get angry. Who's that person honking that horn? You know, I'm trying to meditate in there. Should you know they should be more considerate. There, there may be people trying to sleep or do other things as to honk their horn outside. Uh, so that all of that's processing it. It's dealing with it. It's working with it. It's attaching to it. But if you don't attach to it, don't work with it, don't deal with it, it's just there. I hear the horn. The horns are irrelevant. So you just forget it. It doesn't process. It just exists without you processing it. That's okay. So you can't shut your ears like you can shut your eyes, but you can stop processing sounds. You can stop processing feelings. You can be aware, oh, I'm sitting in a chair. I can feel the pressure of my bottom on the chair. I can feel the heat uh, building up between me and the, and the uh, you know, plastic uh, chair back. And you can be aware of those things, or you can just not process that so that you don't think about it. And when you do that, you basically are letting go of this reality frame. You're letting go of the data stream that's defining this reality. And when you can do those three things, then you're there. You are out of body. You're no longer processing physical data. You don't have a lot of thoughts running through your mind. Your thoughts are, you know, your mind is clear and empty. And your intellect has shut down and you're just being. So that's it. If you can get those three things together, then you're out of body. After that, you have a couple of choices. You can do nothing, and you will experience that you are just a, a point of consciousness floating in a black void. Just do nothing. There you are, floating in the void. Or you can use your intent, a being-level intent, to do something, to go someplace, to get data from a database to understand something, to see something. 
See, you can explore. You can connect with the larger consciousness system. Ask the system to show you someplace that would be educational. Whatever. So then you can intend to do something. And that what you do is any number of things. Initially, I would suggest you do things that are evidential. Because you don't want, you know, you want to know that what you're doing is real. You have to convince yourself of that. All information is real, but you want to convince yourself that, you know, that this is a, your information is coming from a source outside of you. It's not the discount your own imagination is not being important or effective. It is. But you'd like to know that this information is coming from outside of you. So do evidential things like remote viewing, like getting data from databases that you can check, like having conversations with individuals um, that you need to have a heart-to-heart talk with and see if it actually has made a difference. Um, so there's lots of things you can do. But, again, it's statistics. You can't do these things one time. You have to do these things hundreds of times and get a sense of how real it is from your own experience. If you're going to heal people in that state, then somebody might have just gotten well all on their own anyway. So you have to heal hundreds of people hundreds of times and see does their getting well coincide with your healing. Now, if all they have is headaches, well, headaches come and go. But if it's like an illness that they've had for the last 10 years and, um, you know, suddenly out of the blue it gets better or goes away right after you work on them, well, now that's a pretty good statistic, but it's only one data point. You have to have lots of data points before you come to a conclusion. So there's lots of things to do if you want to do something. But it's quite enough in the beginning just to exist in that point consciousness state. Because while you're in that point consciousness state, you will, you will be so deeply relaxed that you'll come back invigorated. You'll come back with more energy than you had when you began. It'll be a real nice state. And it's good to be able to hang out in that state for, say, half an hour. Not just, you know, three seconds. But have it that you can hold that state for at least maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes before a thought comes in. So that's what I'd say. Those, those are kind of the things, the three key things that you have to do is stop processing outside data and um, get your mind focused, which means you don't have noise, you have a clear focus, and let go of your intellect. So those are all things that most people find very hard to do. But everybody can learn how to do it with practice. All right. Thank you, Bodan and Tom. Ingo, if you would like to go next with your questions, please go ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, since several years, I have a very similar type of dream. In this dream, I'm usually followed by a black figure, or this figure stands, uh, just stands somewhere near me. This Entity does not attack me, it's uh, just just there or follows me when I go to another room or location. Um, then I get scared of this figure to the point of panic and sometimes um, wake up screaming. I don't like that at all and sometimes I have trouble to fall asleep again after I wake up from these dreams. Um, in my family we have a history of 
anxiety disorders and I believe some of this has been passed on to me since three to four, three to four years. I face my fear more often and try not to avoid them. But it seems I haven't made any progress yet with these type of dreams. Uh, do my fearful reaction in these dreams may represent a special fear I have? Or are they more likely to represent my general fear level, like in the fear test? I would say they, they could do either, but it's more likely that they are more of the general fear that you have. Just kind of represents those things that make you uneasy, those things that give you anxiety. Uh, probably all represented in that in that black figure. Uh, could be that there's some particular thing in there that uh, bothers you more, but probably not possible. But, uh, it's not the highest probability. And a thing to do, if you can work your courage up, is to when you when you go into that dream and that figure is there. If you can kind of program yourself by saying it over and over in your mind that you, know, you want to do this, is just face it. Turn around and look at it rather than I know it's there, but I don't want to look at it. You know, it's just there. It's kind of stalks me. But if I look at it, a terrible thing would happen. So you you don't want to look directly at it. That's kind of part of the game that uh, you know it's there and uh It knows you're there. You know it's there. But if, as long as you ignore it, then it's okay. But eventually you can't ignore it, and then it becomes a panic, and then uh, it's a problem. But turn around and, and uh, face it. Ask it, you know, what's up? You know, why are you hanging around like that? Uh, go away. I don't need black things, you know, in my life. And deal with it. Or go give it a big hug. Go give it a big hug and, and uh, have some compassion for it because it's not a happy thing. It's an unhappy thing. It's a thing that's just full of stress. It just symbolizes all the stress and fear. So you can just give it a big hug and, and uh, tell it to relax and let go and everything's going to be all right. You know, give it some comfort and uh, see if that doesn't make it melt. So I'd say engage it. And the dream is the, is the perfect place to engage it. Because in a dream, the very worst thing that can happen in a dream is that you wake up in a sweat, right, screaming. You know? But you always wake up. You always end up in your bed and everything's okay. So you know that whatever you do in a dream, you will eventually wake up in your bed and everything will be okay. So in that sense, if you keep that as a kind of your, your comfort, well, the worst thing that can happen is I'll wake up in my bed and I'll be all right, then that's not such a bad thing to have happen. So I would say try that if you can, just to turn to it. Uh, give it some compassion. Know that it's just an embodiment of all your stress, of all the things that that stress you, that are problems. You can say, you know, all of your fears and, you know, I guess that you'd be having a little bit of compassion for yourself in that case. But that's good. And don't feel like it's going to get you or that it's a terrible thing. That just adds to the fear. The more you panic from it, 
the stronger that black thing gets. See? And the stronger that black thing gets, the faster you run from it, and then the stronger it gets. And then pretty soon the black thing can take over your life. It can can uh, kind of dominate you to where your life is is dominated by the fear, by the tension, by the anxiety. And uh, that's not a good place to go. Better to just face it and see what happens and be willing to do that and uh, give it a hug and do it some love. Oh, it's all right. It should relax and shrink away into something more positive because it doesn't really, it's not very happy camper either. So that would be my, that would be my advice. And it's most likely just your general fears, not a very specific, not a specific one. Once you get rid of the general fears down to a, a level of they're not a problem, then you can start looking for specific fears that uh, might remain. But in, in the beginning, work, work on just the general level of fear and let it come down. And now you might be thinking that, well, okay, you inherit this. It's part of your physiology. It's part of your brain chemistry. It's just part of your nature, the way you are. Well, your intent can modify your physical. So your intent can modify that brain chemistry, can modify that uh, genetic inheritance. It doesn't have to be there. Just because it's inherited in part of your physical system doesn't mean that it is uh, unchangeable. You can change that. You can change your brain chemistry. You can change, you know, your your genetic makeup as well. You can change how those genes are expressed. So don't feel that you're trapped because of your genetics. It's not a trap that you can't escape. It's a it's a thing that that uh, you can modify with your own intent. So some some preparatory work to this. I don't expect you to just you know go home tonight and decide to you know, grab the black thing and kiss it, you may want to do some prep work, which is thinking in your mind that I am, you know, think positive thoughts. I am going to change this. I'm not going to progress down that uh, anxiety attack road to where it becomes a bigger and bigger part of my life. Because what happens is your fear that that might happen is what makes that happen. So you can work that process backward to where you can start, uh, thinking very positive thoughts. I'm going to let go of that. I'm going to let go of that stress. It's not going to bother me. I'm going to overcome it. I'm going to change my brain chemistry in that, and I'm not I'm not going to be stuck in that trap. So you may spend some weeks or some months preparing yourself just by being positive. Keep these positive things in your mind, and not just in your intellect. They may start out in your intellect, but you have to feel them. You have to get them down into your being level that you really are going to change that. And you're going to let that anxiety go and do some relaxation exercises. So kind of work yourself up to this point where you feel like you can go into that dream and turn around and deal with that negative thing. But it's neat that you have that in your dream because that consolidates it into a thing you can deal with. When it's all this just stress and I don't know where it comes from, but I just feel it and it seems to come out of the air and 
whatever, it's really hard to deal with because it's not one thing that you can face. It's just kind of, you know, osmosis, you know, the tension just creeps into you and it's difficult to place it. So because you have this dream is what gives me a fair amount of confidence that you can deal with it and get rid of it because you've already pooled it all together, made it into a, an object, this black thing, for you to deal with. So you've already set up the situation to deal with it. Now all you have to do is actually deal with it. So the dream that you have this black thing in your dream is really a positive thing in the sense that you've you've taken the issue, made a symbol of it, a metaphor for it, which is the black thing, which enables you to deal with it. So it sounds like you're on your way to 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 uh, you know a positive outcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, when I wake up from these dreams, I I always I always feel oh, <laughs> didn't make it again. Um, yeah, I I think about it in my everyday life, but yeah, I can I have. Yeah, these dreams are always the same. I think I have to work harder on this. Yeah, prepare for them. Like I say, keep the positive things up. Okay, I will, you know, I am going to, to do this. I am going to let go of that anxiety. I will do some relaxation exercises, and they will change my biochemistry. And sometime in the near future, I am going to deal with that thing. You know, you don't have to go do it all at once. Spend some time uh, doing it. It's just a matter of keeping your mind focused on a positive outcome and at the being level as much as possible. Right now, it'll probably only be easy at the intellectual level, but you need to get it deeper than that, which is why you do repetition. You see, if you just do it once, it's all at the intellectual level. But if you keep telling yourself this and telling yourself this and thinking about the positive aspects of it, just with repetition, it'll begin to seep into your being level. That's um, what do people call those things? Affirmations. That's why people put, you know, affirmations with little magnets on their refrigerator door so that they they read them. You know, every time they go to the refrigerator, they read this positive idea, but that's going to make a positive thing in their life. Reading it once or twice won't do any good, but if you read it and do it and read it and say it and feel it, and you keep doing that over months, over years, it changes you. So with repetition, things will get down into your being level, and it'll start to make a, a change. But just have a real positive attitude toward toward it, and know that that positive attitude may need to work for six months before you actually see, you know, some results in it. But it will it will get a result. The more you repeat it, the more you work on it, the more of your energy and your intent that you put on it, the more it will work. One of the things you're doing is when you do that repetition and you say those positive things, you are putting positive energy toward modifying future probability. You're modifying the future to be a more positive, less anxious space. And it will become that because you will change the probability of that happening. And the more effort you put into it, the more likely, you know, the more that probability changes and the more likely that it begins to manifest here. So it's a matter of keeping at it not giving up, not having the negative attitudes, oh, I'm doomed, you know, I got this from my family, I'm just going to be this way, and, you know, I don't like it, it's affecting my life, and 
becoming more and more intrusive. And as you have those negative things, that's putting energy into that outcome happening, that you have a negative outcome. So you need to eliminate that that negative energy and replace it with positive thoughts. And over time, that will work. It'll it'll change you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I know it's easy to say and hard to do, but uh, it will work with time. You had another question, Ingo, if you'd like to ask yeah. that one as well. Uh, okay, thank you. Um, yes. About about a year ago, I had a had a flirt with a woman for a few weeks. Um, we are studying at the same university and worked for some time in the same laboratory. Um, but we didn't talk that much privately because we worked in different projects. Um, during these weeks. I meditated one evening with the help of the binaural beats and I had to send her positive feelings or my positive feelings for her. I was lying on the carpet with eyes closed and suddenly I heard her hear a distinct male voice in my thought that said, uh, stop it. This voice was so intense and clear that I immediately opened my eyes and ask myself what has just happened. Uh, this voice was so special that I cannot imitate or reproduce it in my thoughts in this way. Um, this is over a year ago and I'm still thinking about it. I don't know if it was her because I hear a male voice, um, if it was myself somehow, or maybe perhaps the LCS or a guide, because I was somehow manipulative manipulative because I wanted an advantage for myself. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts about that. Well, it depends on on where your intent was. If your intent was just one of positive feelings, just that, then, you know, there's no, um, that's not necessarily a self-centered thing. If it was just a positive good feelings, and so on, then that's fine. You know, so I don't think that would be a, somebody telling you to stop that because it was manipulative. But if it was really, you know, if you really were trying to manipulate in the sense that you were trying to uh, um, uh, get her to act in a certain way or, or be a certain way or that sort of thing, then, yes, maybe you felt a little uh, guilty about that, and maybe that's where that uh, that no voice came from. Again, it may have been one of your own creation. Maybe it wasn't necessarily outside of you. Um, I would say that you 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 might want to to see if you can't you know connect with that voice if you can remember it. You know, it was just a strong voice. It may have be something that you can connect to and you can ask why you know what was the what was the issue there was i overstepping my bounds in that you know with that lady was i trying to manipulate her or was it uh do you have some per personal interest in her that i was treading on or you know or was it just my fear and see if you can't get some answers about why you know where that voice came from but just because you hear a voice doesn't necessarily mean 
that you know God's talking to you, or that uh, you know it's a guide, or somebody is has uh, you know is chastising you, or whatever. It can be an expression, just like the black thing. It can be your own fear that is that is doing that, or it could be guilt if you felt like you were maybe manipulating her. But there's nothing. There's no problem in just sending somebody some positive thoughts to somebody. You know, a uh, that kind of thing is a is fine. It's not a. That's not a problem. Um, trying to manipulate her to do specific things or have specific thoughts. Well, that's that's not so good. But probably at the level in which you were doing it, it couldn't hurt much anyway. You know, unless you're pretty practiced at these things, you're not going to have a very big effect. In any case, uh, it's very difficult for you to do much harm. It's not really a big deal either. So I'd say try to try to interact with it again and see if you can get some sense from the system of what that was all about. But meanwhile, don't take it too seriously. You know, eh, okay. Maybe I'll try it again. You know, you can still give that, that person some nice, warm thoughts, some very friendly thoughts, um, just expressing how you feel, not necessarily manipulating or how you want her to feel, but just expressing your own feelings. That's honest enough. That's straightforward. So, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't back away just because somebody told you to. You can press that point and see if it comes back, and if it comes back, then deal with it, interact with it. If not, then you can ignore it and see what happens. This is a, this is a, a trial and error kind of exploration. You know, think of it as, as, uh, as, a, as an experiment. You, know, you gotta you gotta approach all these things as, as as you're an experimentalist trying to figure out what's going to happen next and why. So sometimes you have to press things a little bit to to find out, and that's okay. Okay, thank you. I will do that. All right, thank you. Uh, next up, we have Nicholas. You have a question. Please go ahead with that. Hi, Tom. Hello, Nick. I have a question about something you wrote on the forum about choices uh, because it was really hard to understand because you wrote that people have hundreds if not thousands of choices daily and uh, you added PMR and um, I have no point understanding that we make choices in dreams like uh, Ingo shared with us that when he wakes up for a dream like his first thought is damn I missed it or I failed the test, but uh, in PMR, it's very hard to see on a daily basis where are all those thousands tests because today I only see one active choice, and that is maybe turning into this call, but other than that, I'm clueless. <laughs> all the interactions that you have with people, you know, every time you interact with somebody, every time somebody says something that... Uh, Maybe uh, hurts your feelings, or, uh, or gives you anxiety, or uh, uh, something like that. Somebody maybe says something that uh, you feel unappreciated or uh, undervalued. Anytime you get angry, upset, annoyed, you have choices of how to react to that. Or somebody's nice to you. Somebody comes up and says something real sweet, or gives you a kiss on the cheek, or something. You have 
you have choices of how you're going to react to that. It's not like, oh, I just react. It just comes out of my, you know, out of my uh, being level, and it's not a choice at all. It is a choice. You make being level choices as well as intellectual choices. You could make another choice. You could make a different choice. If somebody says something that is upsetting to you, that you are upset is a choice. You could not be upset if you were different. You can be different. So every interaction, every time, particularly all those times when the action, when the interaction you have with somebody is, is a little negative or maybe you feel slighted or, or undervalued or something, then those are all choices. You don't have to feel that way. If you look at life from a different perspective, you wouldn't feel that way. You would choose differently. So because your perspective is the way it is, you make choices. But that's your perspective. You've, you've gotten that perspective. You've embraced that perspective. That's your reality. Those are your beliefs. Those are your fears. And because of that, you make these choices. Well, if you don't like those choices, you can change them. You can change, get rid of your beliefs, get rid of those fears, get rid of things, and then your perspective changes, and you start making all sorts of different choices. So you have to realize that all of the things you make, even at an emotional level, are all things that you could do differently. That's not the only emotion that you could have at that stimulus. It's only, that's just the one you do have, and it's probably based on fears and beliefs an ego, if you're like most people, that's what generally makes their choices for them is their fears and beliefs and their ego. But you have to take responsibility for all that because that's what you are. You could be different if you so choose. As you get rid of fears and things, you're a different person. So if you, so you can't say those choices are not me. They are you. They're not necessarily your intellect. Nobody says, oh, so-and-so said that. I think I should be angry now. You know, nobody intellectualizes their anger or their upset or their stress. It just happens. It just comes up out of them. But it's still a choice. You have, you are who you are because of all the choices you've made. And you choose to have certain beliefs. And you choose, you know, you have, you have, you have the things that you're afraid of are choices or things that you've come to on your own for the most part. And sometimes they're silly things. Sometimes they're things, a lot of times, they're things that happened to you when you were two and three years old. You know, your two brothers got a got a, a new toy and you didn't get one. So you started to feel inadequate. Because evidently mom didn't like you as much as she liked your two brothers. And that inadequacy then can change your personality. And you start making choices differently. But that was a choice to feel inadequate. You could have felt differently about it. Well, my two brothers were younger than me, so they deserved little teddy bears. And I really was a little old for that. But, you know, or that's all the money mom had. And, uh, you know, it was uh, the twins' birthdays, not mine. Or you could have had some other kind of reaction to it that rather than feeling inadequate, it was a choice that you felt inadequate. So when I talk about choices, I'm not just talking about intellectual choices. I'm talking about emotional choices as well. And that we need to be responsible for all of those emotional choices of the way we are, the way we see things, how we see the world, how we, the filter we put on the information that comes to us. You know, that's our choice. It's how we, we've constructed that filter. 
and we can disassemble that filter and change it. So if we leave it, that's our choice. We don't change it. That's another choice. So that's what I meant by it. Not just intellectual choices that we make. Okay, that it makes it much more clear. Uh, is it only between people, or is it just your emotional state regarding, let's say you are by yourself and not t- talking with anyone one day? Well, if you don't communicate with anyone, then you have less opportunities to interact, you know, and to make choices. But you still have choices, yes. Even if you're by yourself, you have choices. Um, they don't depend on other people. It's just that other people create a lot of choices. When uh, and, and people that you're close to create even more choices. People who are just strangers that you pass by, they don't create many choices for you. But people you interact with create a lot of choices. But still you have choices. If you live alone and you don't go out much, well, you have choices. You know, how do you... How do you keep the place you live? You know, do you make your bed when you get up or do you just leave it messy? You know, do you wash your dishes after you use them or you just let them pile up for a week or two until you run out of dishes and then decide to wash them? Uh, you know, do you, uh, you know, take a shower every day and comb your hair and do these things or do you decide not to do that? Do you spend your time reading or learning or thinking about uh, big thoughts or how to grow up, or do you spend your time, you know, uh, uh, reading comic books uh, and, uh, you know, whatever, um, doing things that aren't helpful or aren't growth. These are all choices you have to make. So everything you do, if you're by yourself with no people and you turn on your computer, what you look at and where you go are all your choices. And those choices can be helpful to you and be good choices, or they can be bad choices. So, yes, even by yourself, there's lots and lots of choices to make with, with what you do with every minute of your day and why you do it. They're all choices. Got it. I can ask one more last question. Sure. Uh, is it always like uh, a certain number when you say 100,000 or is it just random? And also how many is uh, unconscious or outside of uh, even oh. emotional and intellectual? Well, a lot of your choices that you make, that most people make, um, I don't know how many, you know, 100,000, I'm just making that up. It's just a number to, you know, there's lots of choices. Like I say, what you do with every minute of your day, you could call that as a choice. What am I going to do this next minute? My choice. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to stare out the window. You know, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to, uh, you know, hide in the garden and, look through somebody else's window, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to, you know, rob a bank. I'm going to, you know, go work at a job. Whatever it is you do, every minute of your day, you know, you're making choices of what you're going to do with that minute. Even if the choice is I'm just going to continue the next minute doing the same thing I did in the last minute. That's a choice. Or even the choice that I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sit down and do absolutely nothing. That's a choice. So, you know, everything's a choice. So you have lots and lots of choices, minute by minute, of what you're going to do, hour by hour. You have choices of what it is you're going to do with that hour. Even if you're at work and you've got a job to do, you'll have choices of what it is you work on now. Most of us at work have 
a lot of different things we could be doing, but, you know, we usually work on the ones that are at the top of our priority list, but there's lots of things we could do. And often we put off those choices that we don't like. <laughs> well, I really don't want to work on that, even though I should, so I'll work on something else. Well, that's our choice, you see, and then we pay a price for that choice. We pay a price for all our choices. So all these choices add together to become who you are. They define you. So you want to be different, you just have to pay attention to your choices. Make different choices. Instead of putting off that thing you really should do but don't want to, you know, well, go tackle it, do it, get it out of the way. That's a choice. So the choices, you'll grow up by the choices you make. Yes, some of our choices are trivial and some of them are made just out of habit. We get so, you know, we get so ingrained in our beliefs and in our habits that often we, we go through life like a zombie. You know, we don't even know we're making any choices. We just do it because that's what we do. I go to work because I go to work. I do the stuff at work because that's what's in front of me and I just do it. You know, I, whatever it is. You know, I go visit my friends just because that's what I do on Saturday nights. I go hang out with my friends. I play cards. I do this. And pretty soon we can get in a rut to where our life is so habitual that we don't ever think about our choices. We just go through it like zombies, doing whatever it is we do just because that's what we do. And that is just the opposite of what you hear call of what we call being mindful. Being mindful means you're not a zombie. You're paying attention to your choices and what you do. And every minute of the day, you're uh, you know, you're thinking, is this a good choice? Is this the low entropy choice? Is this what I should be doing? Is this, a, you know, am I on a, a growth path? What am I doing here? Be aware, be present in the moment of what you're doing and why you're doing it and what its purpose and point is. And is it towards your growth or towards your decay? So that's being mindful. And uh, it's the opposite of being a zombie. That's, you hear that a lot, you know, mindfulness. Well, mindfulness is mostly just being aware of what you're doing and the choices that you're making. That's what you're mindful of rather than just doing them because that's what you do. Got it. Yeah, that helps. I remember last time I asked for um, on how you can remind yourself of actually doing the work, but pay attention every minute it is. Yes, pay attention. Live in the moment. Say, what is, here's my moment. Here's my next minute. What am I going to do with it? What can I do with it that's useful? It's on my path to growing up. What can I do with it that's helpful to other people? What can I do with it that will that will help serve my responsibilities? You know, responsibilities to your job or to your family or to your Aunt Susie or whoever. You know, what, how can I spend this minute in a, in a profitable way? And then be fully in it. Whatever it is you choose to do, be fully in that and do it. And don't always be thinking about the next moment. You have to be in the moment doing it, but you have to have some sense of why you're doing it and how valuable it is and is it a good thing to do and is it a growing thing. So that's being mindful, yes. Making choices. Every time you're mindful, you're making choices. That's good. Thank you. One note on just what you were saying about choices. Um, is a choice by a child at three a being level choice? Children are so connected and so open and so 
you know, at that age, still connected to the larger consciousness system. Is that a is that whatever choice they make from the being level where they left off at that particular age? Yeah, most of our choices come out of our being level. Some come out of our intellect, but mostly our intellect is just there to justify the choices that come out of our being level. So we do those things that we want to do at a at the being level, and then our intellect tends to justify why that really was a good choice. So yes, at any age, most of our choices are being level are being level choices. We just don't realize it. Even when we're living like zombies, you know, and we're and we're mindless rather than mindful, you know, those uh, those choices are still there. We're afraid to engage life. We don't want to go do things because that takes effort and takes focus and takes takes you know energy from us, and we just drift because that's easy. So these are all choices that we make, and yeah, when a three-year-old makes a choice. I mean, they make a choice from a three-year-old's perspective. Their their choice is from their perspective, but it's still their choice, and it has consequences for them and for others. All right, Tom. Um, Also, one short uh, note on a question that wasn't answered in one of the previous questions. Um, What is the difference? The question asked was, what is the difference between your binaural beats and those of TMI? Oh. Yes, I, I uh, let that one slide by by accident. Uh, the big difference is that you know they both have binaural beats in them. Well, I shouldn't say that from TMI. Some of the new TMI sounds maybe don't have binaural beats, and they have a technology now called SAM, I believe. I don't know, something modulated uh, sound modulated. No, sound, something, modulation. Anyway, that's a new technology. That may not have binaural beats in it, but all the old Monroe tapes still had binaural beats in them, but they were just a very low level, kind of in the background. For you. you might not pick them out, but they were in there just the same. The main ingredient is that they are general, um, general binaural beats that just kind of run the same beat through the whole the whole time let's say the tape lasts an hour okay so they just will have a binaural beat of say four hertz that runs four hertz for the whole hour in the background okay that would be a monroe binaural beat now in the monroe tape we call it a tape that's just old time talk right for uh file audio file okay it's an audio file that uh generally has words with it often with Bob voicing those words, and the words are to lead you to an experience. So first the, first on those tapes, they'll get you to relax. You know, you relax your head, relax your feet, relax your toes, relax this, and then they'll, the words will take you. Get rid, of your, get rid of your fears and your worries and your stuff. Put them all in a box, lock the box, so you don't have any of your worries with you. And that's try to get your mind to get calm and get rid of the noise, right? And then they explain uh, what you're going to do. We're going to uh, communicate with a non-physical being. So I'm going to ca- I'm going to go from one to ten, and when I get to ten, you'll be at focus ten. And when we're at focus ten, you know, communicate with another being. So they lead you through this whole set of expectations of what you're going to do, so that when you get there, and he says, "All right, ten, now go do it," you're already 
primed for it, you've relaxed, you've put your worries away, and you have this expectation of interacting, which makes the probability of it happening much higher. You see, so it's a, it's a lead process. And lead processes are more successful at creating specific experiences than unlead processes. Now, on mine, so that's kind of the Monroe. I'm giving you a very general thing from, you know, from my days in Monroe, which are <laughs> probably way out of date now, but that's, uh, that's kind of the way the Monroe process will work. And they're very successful at doing that. If you lead people through, to a meditation, to an expectation, they will more likely have that experience. And that experience is most always going to be a real experience, something they really are going to communicate with some non-physical being because you set that up. They open to that because they're now open to it. You've led them to it. That opens them up to the possibility, and then they can let it happen and get it. So very successful. My tapes are for a different reason. And most of the things when I teach a course, I'm trying to teach people to be self-sufficient, that they don't need to be led. They don't need to be held by the hand and taken there. They can get there on their own. So I'd like them to, to leave my course with all the information and tools that they need to go do it by themselves, okay, anytime, anywhere. So they don't need to have a tape playing. I also tell them eventually you got to let the binaural beats go. Don't listen to them. You need to wean yourself off of them eventually so you can have this experience while you're sitting on a bus, you know, someplace, or while you're in the backseat of a car, or while anytime. You don't have to have my tape that's going to, you know, lead me there, my binaural beats that are going to lead me there. The whole idea is to become self-sufficient so that you own it. You're not just taken for a ride, but, you know, you, you own the process. And that's a much better place to be in. You're not tied to a particular process or a particular way of doing things. So um, mine, I don't have just a single binaural beat that runs in the background because I don't have a foreground. My whole thing is just the binaural beat. And I have a mixture of different kinds of beats from different bass frequencies. I'm changing the bass frequency and changing the beat frequency all the way through it. I raise the beat frequency a little bit to grab your attention back and get you working. I lower it uh, some to put you in a, in a deeper state. I'll keep changing that up because if you just keep the same thing going all the time and you don't have somebody leading with words, then the person tends to drift off because it's just this one tone and they just tend to kind of, you know, drift off with it. They stop paying attention. They stop working. And the next thing they know, it's over. So they remember it started and then they, re they notice that it's over, but they don't remember anything in between because they were just floating without doing anything. So mine are much more varied. Uh, the beat is much stronger and more noticeable as far as your ability to hear it. Um, and I don't have any words. I expect people to lead themselves, to stay awake, awake, to stay focused, to stay working, to have a, a sense of them getting there on their own, because that builds confidence. You see, if you don't have that, then you don't have any confidence to do it yourself. It's not really yours. 
you have to go get this CD or this tape or this sound file. Otherwise, you can't go anywhere or do anything. And that's not, I mean, it's a good place to start, but it's not a good way to end up. So that's the main difference between mine and theirs. I'm teaching people to be independent and do it on their own because I know that's where you're going to make real progress. As long as you have to be led, you'll have an experience, but you won't have command over your consciousness. You won't really be in charge of your consciousness and able to deal with it. So that's the difference. Uh, at Monroe, they are helping you have peak experiences, helping introducing you to a larger reality, helping to uh, give you the experience of whatever, you know, remote viewing, healing, um, inner, you know, talking to non-physical entities. They want to help you experience that with the idea that if you experience it, it'll be easier for you to experience it again and to help you gather evidence that it's real. Well, I also fo focus on evidence, but I, I force my students to learn to do it on their own. I don't hold their hand. I don't give them um, you know, things that they should, should have happen. I let it all develop naturally because that is the way that you can go a lot further. And uh, it's more fundamental knowledge than when you're than when you're led. And that's what my course is about, not to have a peak experience, but to understand your consciousness and how to get around in a larger consciousness system. Although people doing that do have peak experiences, but uh, they have them under their own power, not because I lead them there. Right. Thank you, Tom. I know I tested out some of the binaural beats, and the, the number eight was particularly powerful. That one was an instant out. Um, also, the control factor um, also applies to the reason that you and Dennis and Bob and your whole program has always been anti-drugs. Um, you're in, not in control of your own consciousness under a drug situation as well. So yours is very much about um, being in control of your own consciousness and uh, and getting there on your own. So yeah. I appreciate that. Well, Monroe that. is very much about not drugs too. Monroe yes, has a no drug true. policy. They don't. Absolutely. Uh, they don't do that. That's see, that's the opposite. You can think of this in in, in uh, kind of in a in a line, if you will. The the way that you have the least knowledge and the least ability and the least control is if you take a drug. You, know, you can take a drug and bingo, now you're in the larger consciousness system, but you really didn't get there on your own. You don't understand it. Uh, you haven't really done the work to learn what to do with it now that you're there. So it's more of just an experience. It's a gee whiz, like riding a roller coaster. Wow, that sure was cool. You know, I saw how reality worked and I felt the love and so on. And it's, it's still, it's a real experience, but it's, that's, that's the, the least of all experiences with the non-physical because it's it's just an experience with no context for the experience. You're not really learning much. You're just having an experience. And you don't grow up from just having experience. You grow up from changing yourself. And some experiences can be life-changing, but mostly if they're drug experiences, they're more intellectual. 
It's not so much a, I shouldn't say that, but uh, it's just a different quality of experience than if you do it on your own. And the next level is that you don't use drugs, but you have hand-holding. As somebody leads you to what it is you're going to do. And then on the far end of that is nobody holds your hand. Nobody does anything other than maybe helps you meditate with a binaural beat. And then they want to take that away from you after a while. And they make you do it all on your own. So it's just different levels of how much discipline do you bring to it. With a drug, you don't bring any level of discipline to it. You don't have any, you don't develop any discipline. You're just having an experience. On the other extreme, it's all, it's all your discipline. If you're not disciplined, nothing will happen. So, and then there's this middle ground that uh, Monroe serves, which is a large majority of people just want to have an experience. That's a, that's a middle ground that gets served by them. So it's just that kind of string of, you know, how, how engaged are you? Well, at a drug level, you're not, you're not engaged at all. You're just along for the ride. At the Monroe level, they actually send a bus to pick you up and take you on a ride. And then uh, in my level, uh, you're on your own. you got to walk. Uh, enjoy the scenery as you go.